Now, we uh, are extremely happy to have Norman Muriel, Dr. Uh, Cook and his wife Muriel, with us for this conference. Dr. Cook and, and uh, Mrs. Cook were in Taiwan for 16 years with OC Ministries. I guess back then it was Orient Crusade and became Overseas Crusade and now is OC Ministries. After those 16 years, they were moved back to the head office of OC Ministries and were, have been in charge of personnel for 12 years. For the last three years, however, he has become the professor of missions out at Multnomah School of the Bible. And many here have had the opportunity to learn under him. Many here have heard him before. So it is our privilege to have him with us. He is a missionary at heart. He takes seriously Paul's uh, directions to uh, become like the people to whom he ministers. If you remember, last July I had a large bandage on my hand. For I tried to uh, trim my fingernail in a lawnmower. And I guess word of this got back to Norm and realizing that he wanted to fit in with what the ministry was here, thinking that all teachers at Cole had to trim their fingernails with a lawnmower, uh, he followed suit. This may have been taking Paul's instructions a little bit too far. But <laughs> Dr. Cook. Yes, I um, am here uh, in all in one piece. Fortunately, my doctor spent three and a half hours of microsurgery putting my finger back together again. And uh, I would take this thing off, but my, uh, the physical therapist promised me I'd wear it 24 hours a day. It makes everything a little awkward. It's not as painful as it is just plain awkward. I wonder how many here are, have studied at Multnomah School of the Bible. Would you just, I, want, I need the encouragement. Yes, good. Are there others? Yes, good to see you. They say you can tell somebody from Multnomah, but you can't tell them much. I don't know if that's true or not. My wife and I have been there for, uh, for about three years now and really are enjoying ourselves. We have our enrollment this year is uh, 75 above what we anticipated. Uh, we're 765 and more than double the students signed up to major in missions uh, than, than last year. So I'm really excited about that. I'm sure it's not my teaching. It's the uh, other professor that we have on staff. This morning, uh, we begin an emphasis on missions, and I do hope to meet with many of you personally during the time that we're here and uh, get acquainted and maybe to share some concerns that you have about the whole area of world missions. Now, I know that the subject of missions is not the most popular subject uh, in local churches or, or in many places. Uh, as a matter of fact, in, in, for many people, uh, it's about the last thing they want to talk about. I even hear missionaries get up and say, uh, well, the last thing I ever wanted to be was a missionary. And it sort of indicates how they felt about missions. And I know in many churches, the least attended meetings during the structured uh, calendar year are the missionary meetings. As a matter of fact, many missionaries, many churches won't even have a missionary conference. Uh, they, they just think it's uh, out of date, passe, old fashioned isn't relevant, and make all kinds of excuses for doing so. Um, it's, uh, it just isn't there. It just isn't the popular thing to talk about. You can uh, get uh, much uh, more attendance having couples retreats, having marriage enrichment seminars, having uh, uh, self, uh, what, uh, self-acceptance uh, um, seminars, 
those kinds of things, they grab the people more. They give more interest. And I, I'm concerned about that. I feel perhaps that the negative attitude regarding missions is uh, partly the result or the fault of those of us who are missionaries. Because sometimes we come back and uh, because we've been gone for three or four years, we don't know what uh, the, the, the present clothes styles are and uh, we can't buy the latest uh, things. Uh, we don't have the money for it. And uh, so we kind of wear what we had four years before when we left. And we're just out of tune that much. And then even our conversation, you know, we've been immersed, immersed in another culture. For me, it was Chinese. Uh, we're struggling to learn Chinese. We're struggling to adapt to the Chinese way of thinking, the Chinese lifestyle. And suddenly we're thrust back into this fast-moving American culture. And we're really out, out to lunch for about three or four, maybe five months. And then we're put in front of people to talk and we don't say the right things. We're sort of saying the words, but we're missing you about 50 feet. And you say, well, if that's what a missionary is, I don't want anything to do with it. You know, I often tell the young people that like to shock their parents. I say, why don't you go home and tell your mom and dad that God's called you to the mission field? That'll really shake them up. <laughs> They'll wring their hands and scratch their heads and say, where'd we go wrong? You know, they can handle the drugs and they can handle the sex and they can handle everything else, the booze. But this going to the mission field is just too much. They can't handle it. But, you know, I know that this church is a Bible-centered church. I mean, you really get into the Word of God. And I think that from this church there ought to come some biblical concepts and ideas about this whole area of world missions that ought to be different than the average person. Um... Let me just say one other thing before I, before I start preaching. Uh, I'm discovering something, and that is that the deadheads with regard to world missions are not out there. They're in here. When I'm out in the secular world playing ball with non-Christians, I used to play ball with non-Christians, and they ask who I am, I tell them I'm a missionary, their mouths drop open, their eyes flash, and they say, oh, well, tell us about it. What do you do? Why do you do it? That must be exciting. And on and on and on. But when I come to church people, Christian people in local churches, that's when they start falling asleep. I can't figure it out exactly, but it happens anyway. And uh, I know this is happening in the secular world because not long ago I picked up a Time magazine. And here is a cover story on missionaries. Here's one of our missionaries, our brothers in, uh, in service for the Lord out in, out in Indonesia moving among the uh, uh, people, uh, preaching the gospel. The new missionary is the cover story on Time magazine. That is not a theological journal. You know, that's not the latest publication from Dallas Theological Seminary. No. What is Time magazine? What is it? You can, you can speak up. What, what is Time magazine? Secular news magazine. What's the bottom line for Time magazine? Money. Are they going to put anything on the cover that won't sell? No. What has the research department of Time Magazine discovered? Something's happening. Something's happening in the Christian world that the, that the, that the average person in the United States needs to know about. And smack right on the cover of Time Magazine is a missionary in a 16-page story inside. And you know, I read that with great relish. 
but I think if you read it, you probably missed a little phrase that was in the editorial, which was really striking. In the editorial, it said that, that this particular New York-based correspondent was sent on this assignment to go around the world to talk to missionaries. And he said he paled while Christians prayed because he was traveling in these airplanes, MAF airplanes that were landing on postage stamp size airfields. He paled while Christians prayed. And then he made this, makes this comment. He said, I have never met a group of people I liked more. Secular news correspondent for Time magazine evaluating missionaries after many years of service with that magazine said he's never met a group of people I like more. That's not the attitude of most people in the church. I mean, the missionaries, you know, forget about them. They're unimportant. I want us to look at the Apostle Paul, uh, who is a pretty good guide for us. We're trying to become a biblical, have a biblical mentality regarding missions. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, in verses 8 and 9, two very short verses, but just loaded with truth for us today. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9. The other day, I, w I went to bed. I was, uh, for some reason, I was very depressed. I, I don't get depressed, but I really was. And uh, everything, it seemed, I was doing was not quite coming out like I'd planned it. And uh, I, uh, I sort of felt like the best thing to do is just go to sleep. And I think that's true. Sometimes we get worn out and tired and our fatigue makes us depressed and discouraged. Uh, so I went to sleep, had a good night's sleep. The next morning I got up, I got my Bible, and for some reason I turned to 1 Corinthians 15, and I read that wonderful chapter. It's about the resurrection. The Apostle Paul talks about the body being sown in corruption but being raised and incorruptible. And it's the glorious resurrection. That was exciting to me. I was so blessed by that. Kind of put things in perspective. The Apostle Paul closes this chapter uh, 15 with verse 58. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers... Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. My, that was great. The Lord was saying to me through that, Norm, grab yourself by the seat of the pants, get out of bed, get dressed, and go to work. Keep on working for the Lord. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's a good message for missionaries. That's a good message for you folks who may not think you're missionaries, but you are. But then I look down to chapter 16, verse 1. It says, now, concerning the collection for the saints. Yeah, I'm kind of puzzled about that. Why didn't he stop at the end of chapter 15, 58? Great summary, great climax. Isn't that the way we usually like things to happen? That one-hour programs on television have all those problems, but they've got to come to a wonderful, satisfying climax at the end. And we like to live life, you know, in the glories, in the resurrection theme. The Apostle Paul closes chapter 15 and he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints. In other words, the routines of life, that's what it's all about, really. There are those emotional experiences, those times we dwell in the presence of God, and they're, they're, they're wonderful, they're uplifting, they're thrilling. But what about the routines of life? The offering, the collection. Nothing more routine and more mundane and matter-of-fact and practical than... Did the, was the offering taken, by the way, this morning? Oh, good. I'm glad you did. Uh, 
But here he goes into that. And then he talks about that a while. He's going to come to see them and visit them along the way. It's interesting, as a missionary writing to a local church, he said, uh, um, verse 6, he said, Perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter. Here's a missionary writing to a local church. There aren't many churches that would say, Come on, Paul, we want you for the whole winter. They might take them for a day or two, but not the whole winter. You know, look up the local Motel 6 or someplace or some empty apartment and get rid of them. You know, get them out there alone. But Paul said, I may stay for the winter. And then he comes down to this, this, these two verses. But he says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. I see in this uh, three basic attitudes that you and I should have regarding modern missions today. First, that one of, that's of optimism. Secondly, of realism. And thirdly, of determination. And I see the first one when the Apostle Paul said that there in Ephesus, there was a great door for effective work opened unto him. Now, if you, you need the background of Acts chapter 19 and 20 for this. And you might want to turn to that and kind of read through it as I'm talking. Paul moves into Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the large cities of that day. It had the same problems that San Francisco or Los Angeles or Chicago or New York or London or Tokyo or any of the major cities of our world today has. Lots of people, a lot of sin, a lot of corruption, a lot of idolatry. They worshiped the goddess Diana or the goddess Artemis. And there was a temple there that was nearly the size of a football field with columns 60 and 70 feet high and at that temple became the focus of worship for that goddess all over that area of the Middle East and the people flocked there to worship idolatry was rampant it was so rampant that the idols that were sold became a major source of income for that city and yet the Apostle Paul looking at Ephesus said the doors are wide open now that's different than many of us as we look at the worlds in which we live we look at many of our major cities and say, we don't want it. We see the closed doors. We see the crime and the corruption and all of that. And we see the opposition and the obstacles in the path. But the Apostle Paul looked at this city and he said the doors are wide open. And you'll see in Ephesus in chapter 19 of Acts, as he went into Ephesus, he found 12, believe, 12 disciples there. They didn't have the full understanding of the gospel, but he was able to share with them and they became believers. In the fullest sense of the word. Then he began to talk and teach in the synagogue. And for three months he was in the synagogue. For dealing with people whose minds were open. Who were searching. And everywhere we go as missionaries we find those kinds of people. They're inquisitive. They're looking for truth. And when you give it to them there's a response. He did that for three months. There was opposition. He moved from there to the hall of Tyrannus. A private residence. Evidently with a large hall. And that became a focus of his ministry. And there again, he taught the word of God. And from the teaching the word there in that hall of Tyrannus, there in Ephesus, he sent out from that hall into the, the area of that area of the world, uh, disciples, interns, if you will, who went from village to village preaching the gospel. It said all of Asia heard the word because of the Apostle Paul's ministry there in the city of Ephesus. The doors are wide open. Paul saw it with great optimism. And I want to say to you today, as we look at the world in which we live, we should see it with great optimism. 
There are several reasons for that. First of all, it's biblical to be optimistic. You know, those of us who are Christians are to be the most optimistic people on the block in our communities. But such is not true in many cases. Many Christians, as they talk, they get dwelling on the good old days, how wonderful it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago. The world now today is getting worse and worse and worse and more and more wicked. And you want to spread, spread black crepe paper all around the place, you know, and start funeral music. And certainly, as we talk, many evangelicals talk, we're just giving assent and support to the God is dead theory. A few years ago, this theory was being proposed and taught, and we searched it out and said, no, 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 that's not true. But by our attitudes and by our lies and by our words, we were saying, yes, that God must be dead. The world's getting terrible. Well, even a few years ago when I got married, it was 34 years ago to be exact, um, I had a godly gentleman come up to me and he said, Norm, I know you're getting married, and I just want you to know that, uh, give you a little advice. He said, I don't think you ought to have any children. I said, why? He said, because the world is so bad, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. And it would be sinful you, for you to have children, bring them up in this sinful world. I don't know about you, but he was reading a different Bible than I read. He was worshiping a different God than I worship. Because my Bible says in the first chapters of Genesis that God was the one that created the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God did this, and God did that, and God saw it was good. Read, if you get discouraged, read Genesis 1 and 2. It's terrific. We ought to be singing, this is my Father's world, I rest me in that thought. We have a sovereign God in creation. A sovereign God who's in control right now. A sovereign God who's going to be here at the end of time. And we who really love the Lord and read the Bible ought to be the most optimistic, most positive people in the whole city block, in our communities. And when it comes to world missions, we should be the same way. People say, yeah, Norm, but do you see the church? I mean, churches falling apart, uh, splitting up. Uh, oh, it's terrible what's happening in the church. Look at my church. Look. I say, yeah, look, at if it's your church, it's in trouble. If it's my church, it's in trouble. But the Lord Jesus in Matthew 16 said to the disciples, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What did he say? He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What did Jesus say? He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Whose church is it? It's his church. What did he say he would do? He said, I'll build that church. Who's on the defensive? Who's on the defensive? Satan is. He's building up the wall. He's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my church. And nothing's going to stop that from going. It's biblical to be optimistic. It's also factual. You know, we have a song in our hymnals. I don't know whether it's in yours or not. It says, Jesus shall reign where the sun does his successive journeys run. It talks about his kingdom reign from shore to shore and so forth. That was written in 1775 or so. 
When was that? When when that was written, where did Jesus reign? Here in Idaho, Washington, Oregon, California. Where did Jesus reign? Not in this part of the world. Not in China. Not in Russia. Hardly anywhere except in the in uh, in Rome and in Europe and in uh, England and the coastal part of our United States. You see, when Isaac Watts sat down to write that hymn, that was not true. He wrote it by faith that one day the message of Jesus Christ would be preached and be known and be followed and believed around the world. Today, you and I can sing it by In fact, do you know that the recent conference was 1975, now nine years ago, in Lausanne, Switzerland, the last World Congress sponsored by Dr. Billy Graham, that there were more nations represented at that Congress, not by Western missionaries, but by national Christians, that were gathered there together to talk about evangelization of our world. More nations represented at that conference than sit in the United Nations in New York City. Now you can say praise the Lord and how I'm not a Pentecostal charismatic. But I think sometimes we need to just get excited and say hallelujah and praise God, regardless of what we belong to. There are more nations today who acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord than ever before in history. One of the great thrilling facts of world missions today is that the whole scene of missions is not just the burden of us white-faced Americans. But it's we're joining up and being teamed up with Yellow-skinned Japanese and Koreans and, and um, the many Chinese from Singapore and from the Philippines and from Africa, the black skins of Africa and South America. And they're going, we're crisscrossing each other's paths and seeking to reach our world for Jesus Christ. Thrilling time to live with regard to world missions. As a matter of fact, one missionary has written, a statesman has written a book which he calls The Last Age of Missions. And he focuses upon third world missionaries who are rising up and saying, we can do the job. The missionaries that have passed have done a fantastic job in planting the seed and they've nurtured and they've brought these new believers to maturity and they've formed churches of their own. They've got denominations going. And now they've caught the missionary vision themselves. And they're going from Korea down to Africa. We're going over from the Koreans are going into India. They're going to Indonesia. The Korean church, one church alone, has a goal of having 20,000 missionaries from that one church. Fully supported, trained from Seoul, from Seoul, Korea by the year 2000. That particular church, by the way, is the largest church in the whole world. When I was there about uh, eight years ago, they had 32,000 members. They had four Sunday morning services. In October of last year, that church registered 320,000 believers in one church. The goal of that pastor has five, is to have 500,000 believers by 1985. When I was in Korea a few months, uh, a few years ago, uh, a missionary came in and he said, I just had a very thrilling experience. We just baptized 3,000 believers. There were 60 pastors lined up on the riverbank and 50 people lined up behind each one of those and they baptized every one of them. They estimate that as much as maybe 20% of the population of South Korea are born-again Christians. What have we heard about mainland China? 
When missionaries left 35 years ago, there may have been a million Christians in all of China. Today, they're the lowest number I've heard are 30 million. And as many as 50 million are recorded in China today. What about Hong Kong? Do you know the wealthiest Protestant church in the entire world is in Hong Kong? I'm talking about the whole Protestant body there. The Christians are the ones in Hong Kong that are driving the Mercedes Benzes. And those that are not Christians are walking on the sidewalk. 10 to 15% of the population of Hong Kong are Christians. I served in the Taiwan for 16 years. And we had in Taiwan what we called the Pentecost of the Hills. And uh, you see, the, the Japanese had, were, had ruled Taiwan for 50 years. And before the Japanese war, missionaries had reached a few of the mountain people, one woman in particular. And uh, the missionaries were forced to leave. This one woman went back to the mountains. She began to talk about Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And the Japanese soldier says, no, nobody can be that powerful. You know, only the emperor can be that powerful. And the more the Japanese opposed her, the more the local people wanted to hear what she had to say. And she began to preach from village to village. And you can go to the caves today where she preached the gospel to the village people at night. And they accepted Christ. And whole villages became Christians. And missionaries, when they came back after World War II, went into those villages and found that the, the people would line the pathway. And I've been there myself. Line the pathway. And they were standing on either side of the path, welcoming the missionary back there to baptize them and bring them into the church. For several years, my job in my missionary work in Taiwan was to go to those villages and say that now you've become a Christian, this is what a Christian really believes. This is what we act. This is what we do. And had three and four day Bible conferences among those people in the mountains of Taiwan. In Vietnam one time, I was preaching in a tiny village way up near Dalat. And uh, uh, the village chief said, uh, uh, who also was... Uh, leading member of a church. He said, Mr. Cook, he said, in the last 12 months, 20,000 of my people have become Christians. I didn't hear what he said because I was going to have a meal in his home when I was in the kitchen. There was a big bowl on the table and something in that bowl moved about that time. <laughs> so he shook my arm and the interpreter, the missionary interpreter shook my arm and he said, did you hear what he said? I said, well, please repeat it. And uh, so it, 20... 20,000 people in 56 villages. Now, those of us who have been in Vietnam know there are many different kinds of motivation that move them to make that decision. But that motivation wasn't important at this point. 20,000 people said they turned, burned their fetishes, they turned away from their idols to worship Jesus Christ. Same thing happened in Indonesia. Same thing is going on in the Philippines. Right now in the Philippines, probably the most... Uh, uh, responsive nation in the entire world to the preaching of the gospel, there is a plan, a nationwide plan, to plant a church within psychological distance of every Filipino. That means 20,000 new churches that are being planned right now. And different missionaries and different mission groups have set a goal. They've had their, their plans all laid out and they're matching their goals. It's incredible what God is doing in the Philippines. I could take you to Latin America as well. Uh, I was just down there in Argentina this past year, past summer. I spent the entire summer down there. And uh, God blessed our ministry. I've never seen so, such people so open to the gospel. I met with one man who was 
part of the super rightist group that was responsible for the death of many innocent people, Argentine people. And he sat there with his wife and his six children, and he said, what do I have? What heritage, legacy do I have to pass on to my children? And I talked to him about becoming a man of God. And we prayed with him right there with, in front of his wife and his kids. And for four hours, we opened the Bible and shared with him the word of God. And he received Christ into his heart and life. The next day, he brought his family back again. And we had another time with him. I prayed with a colonel who was the manufacturer of the largest, or the superintendent of the largest armament-making factory in all of Argentina. His heart was broken because of what his country has gone through. We prayed with him at 3 o'clock in the morning to receive Christ. The doors are open. I went to Sao Paulo, Brazil. The largest church building I've ever been in my life is in Sao Paulo, Brazil. It seats 25,000 people. It's a full city block. Not a Boise city. Not a Portland. I mean a New York City city square block. When I first saw it, it was just a, the shell was up, you know, the superstructure. Uh, the roof was on. And there was dirt inside. I walked inside and the pastor was standing clear at the other side of the building. I could only see the top half of him. The curvature of the earth, you know, was so far away. <laughs> we, he finally got over to where I was mid-afternoon and we started talking. And he said, Norm, he said, I want you to know that when I... He said, Dr. Cook, Mr. Cook. He said, uh, when I ordered the pews for my church, I ordered them by the mile. At that time, they were meeting in the foyer. The church only seats 8,000. Across the mountains in Santiago, Chile, there's a church that has 80,000 members. Sanctuary only seats 16,000. The people can only come to the mother church once every four Sundays. They have a 2,000-voice choir. They have over 200 guitars that accompany the choir. I mean, it... What I'm... In Africa... You know, it's incredible what God is doing in Africa. Even those of us that are missionaries and get excited about things can't keep up with it. There are new denominations being formed, new churches being planted, and it's being done by Africans. I'm not saying much about Europe because the picture isn't very bright in Europe. But what I am saying to you is that God is alive and well and that we can be very optimistic about what he's doing. If you want to do a little research, there's a book that's about this big and about 2,000 pages written by Dr. Barrett. It's a 14-year project. It's the World Christian Encyclopedia. It's the most definitive book that's ever been written on the subject of the Christian church. And he makes the statement, after 14 years of in-depth research, that we as Christians have accomplished our goal of reaching our world for Jesus Christ better than most of us ever realize. Paul said the doors are wide open. And today as I teach at Multnomah School of the Bible, I had, I had uh, twice as many students this year say I want a major in missions than, than said last year. I see more and more young people and older people saying, you know, making money is not where it's at. Serving the Lord is where it's at. And they're following the Lord. They're committing themselves to it. And it's exciting. Optimism. But realism, he says, and there are many who oppose me. He says in chapter 15 here, verse 32, I believe it is, what does it matter if after the manner of men that I wrestled with beasts at Ephesus? Yeah, verse 5. If I fought wild beasts at Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? 
He didn't wrestle any beasts in Ephesus. He wrestled people. Look at that chapter 19 of Acts. They opposed him in all kinds of ways. And when we think of missions today, uh, there are many things, many obstacles in our path. But I find that the greatest obstacle to world missions is not out there. It's not the resurgence of the ethnic religions. It's not the totalitarian governments. It's not the, uh, the cost of missions, financially or otherwise. But it's the unbelief that exists in my heart and in your heart, in the hearts and lives of those who say they are followers of him. Somehow they read the Great Commission statement, go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of all the nations. They don't believe it. We just don't believe it. And we lack the faith. The greatest opposition, I say, is not out there. It's in here. Jesus said, as his commission to us, before he ascended to heaven, he said, go and disciple the nations. And there are many who oppose me. That's realism. Let's make this, put this down. Anytime you make any move for God, you're going to be opposed. Satan's going to try to stop you. Whether it be in salvation, whether it be a new step of spiritual commitment, a deeper walk with the Lord, whether it be a commitment to be faithful in church service or attend the prayer sessions or whatever it is, or go to the mission field, Satan's going to stop you. He's going to try any way he possibly can. But I like what the Apostle Paul says in chapter the, the first verse. But, he said, I will stay at Ephesus until Pentecost. I see in that a determination, a commitment, not allowing the obstacles to deter him from accomplishing the thing that God brought him into being for. And you see it in one verse back here in Acts 20, as he gathers the people of Ephesus together and talks to them, telling them that he's going on to Jerusalem and he's probably going to face uh, uh, persecution and prison and hardship. In verse 24, chapter 20, he says, However, I consider in my life, chapter 24, verse, of, of chapter 20, rather, verse 24, he says, however, I consider my life nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. When you go to Yuba City, California, which is not exactly the center of the universe, I hope you go visit and stay in a motel called Veda's Motel. There's a couple there named the Scheidlers, Olin and Mabel Scheidler. They're just ordinary people. They might even feel uncomfortable in your midst because they're just ordinary. I mean, really ordinary. They're confined to a motel. Anything more confining than a motel? Changing the sheets, signing people in and out, repairing the damage. They're imprisoned by that motel. They really are. And yet, I've never met a couple that are more happy, that have more of a world vision. They bless my heart every time I go there. On the wall of their kitchen is a large, about a six by three and a half uh, cardboard uh, board. And on it are the pictures of 50 or 75 missionaries that they pray for on a regular basis. Every meal, they have those missionaries right above their table. 
And they sit there and talk about that one and this one and that one and so forth. And they pray for them. They've got a world. They're not leaving Yuba City. But they have, they're world citizens because they have a commitment to prayer. There are those that are giving in a way that's very significant. I wish I could take you to the Damer family in northern Indiana. God moved on their heart in a church something like this, in a service like this. They felt a burden for world missions. They felt they wanted to go, but they couldn't go because of parents on both sides of the family and children. But God said to them as a family, if we can't go, then we want to be responsible for supporting a missionary family completely, totally ourselves. And for four years, one of the families in overseas crusades served in Vietnam, totally supported by the Damer family in northern Indiana. You know, they didn't have the wall-to-wall carpet or the new color TV or the brand new car. They didn't have a lot of things that we have in our homes. But I've never met a happier couple in my life. God is looking today for men and women who believe Him and who commit themselves to the great cause of reaching the world for Jesus Christ. Father, I just pray this morning that you'll break through the hard heart, uh, even the thin shell that surrounds some of our thinking, that robs us of our, uh, fully being used by you, you'd indelibly impress upon our hearts what you're doing and what needs to be done. And then that part we're to have. Every one of us have an Ephesus, Father, an area of responsibility you've given to us. And may we see it with all our eyes wide open and see the problems and the obstacles. And then commit ourselves to it. Give our lives to it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.